Presses Play. Hey everyone, and welcome to Girl Presses Play, the movie podcast where we talk about films, what we think about them, and what makes them so damn great. I'm your host, Alana Rafferty. Get comfy, grab some popcorn, and get ready, because we're about to press play. And now for our feature presentation. Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and all those in between. Welcome to our season two finale of Girl Presses Play. I hope you all are gearing up for the holidays, working on your winter layer with lots of Christmas cookies and all of that, and getting excited just to kind of sit back, relax, and kind of just enjoy the rest of 2021. We are officially in the holiday swing of things here in the States, and it's interesting because so far over two seasons, the end of this season, the current season, seems to coincide with the holiday season coming on, so one might say it's a bit of a tradition. And since it's been like a year, we, we're just going to have a nice, cozy conversation about these films and not talk about super serious things, but have a nice, interesting conversation. Which brings us to the classic, classic Christmas film, Miracle on 34th Street and its 1994 remake. And watching these movies was very enjoyable, but I will say... They're mostly the same film, just made in different time periods. But what's interesting about their similarities is the fact that they are so similar. And because it's a Christmas movie specifically, I feel like it does kind of say something to watch these two films together. Because it really brings up a lot of the idea of our need for tradition, especially this time of year. So we're going to take a look at those two films and explore that idea of tradition and something being the same year after year for our whole lives. It's kind of a heady subject, but it's not going to be a super serious downer subject, I promise. So let's uh, get your favorite cozy sweater and grab some eggnog and take a look at the 1947 Miracle on 34th Street from director George Seaton and its 1994 remake from director Les Mayfield. If this court finds that Mr. Kringle is not who he says he is, then I would ask the court to judge which is worse, a lie that draws a smile or a truth that draws a tear. So this is something that I find very, very interesting. And this is probably going to surprise a lot of people. Miracle on 34th Street wasn't originally meant to be a holiday movie in the way we understand it. It wasn't supposed to be this it comes out and develops this legacy and, you know, they sell the rights to air it on CBS every Christmas, like an It's a Wonderful Life sort of situation. This was really meant to be just a heartwarming comedy drama about family and believing in stuff. <laughs> I'm not sure what they thought they were doing in that regard, because it's literally about proving that Santa is real. But hey, it was 1947. It was different times. I don't know. But anyway, um, because of this aspect that it wasn't meant to be a full-fledged holiday film, the 20th Century Fox studio head at the time, Richard D. Zanuck, 
who was reportedly not a huge fan of the film, had the idea that more people would go to see films in the summer. So they chose a May release date and downplayed the Christmas elements. If you ever want to see the trailer they devised, it's the most meta bonkers thing you've ever seen in your life. Just Google Miracle on 34th Street 1947 trailer and have your mind get blown and be confused and all of that. But it is interesting because that choice isn't insanely crazy because while it is about proving that Santa exists, it's actually not as overtly Christmassy as you would think. This is my first time seeing the film, and I expected something much more along the lines of A Christmas Story or It's a Wonderful Life or The Grinch in the way that it's so overtly a Christmas movie, but it's actually pretty muted. I mean, even even just the fact that not every set design has Christmas elements to it or... You know, the music isn't specifically holiday-esque. It's that very classic 1940s orchestral score. That's probably mostly due to the very low budget they had. They were only given about $630,000, which when you have giant stars like Maureen O'Hara and John Payne, that's not a whole lot to work with. And it's interesting because even though it's a Christmas movie that came out in May, it became a huge hit it won actor Edmund Gwen the Oscar for his portrayal of Chris Kringle, and it's become a staple in many households during the holidays since. A part of me does wonder if it's become a holiday staple because it's not so overtly Christmassy. Really, the main theme is about believing in non-tangibles. And that does... This isn't research. This is opinion. I just want to preface. It does make sense for a movie that came out right in the midst of World War II and that people wanted something to believe in. They wanted to believe that there was this powerful entity that, that only wanted nothing but the best for men and women of this earth and to bring joy to them. So I do wonder if that was part of the success, other than, of course, the really well-written screenplay and the wonderful acting and the great direction. But I also think sometimes the success of a film, the box office success of a film, I should say specifically, is kind of an intangible thing that you can't really point a finger to. You can look at some external facts, but there's not a lot of hard and fast rules for why a movie does well or doesn't do well. One might say this movie's box office success was a miracle, but um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the last dad joke of this episode, I promise. You see, Mrs. Walker, this is quite an opportunity for me. For the past 50 years or so, I've been getting more and more worried about Christmas. Seems we're all so busy trying to beat the other fellow in making things go faster and look shinier and cost less that Christmas and I are sort of getting lost in the shuffle. Oh, I don't think so. Christmas is still Christmas. Oh, Christmas isn't just a day. It's a frame of mind. And that's what's been changing. That's why I'm glad I'm here. Maybe I can do something about it. While trying to research the 1994 version of Miracle on 34th Street, which, fun fact, was executive produced by John Hughes himself, what's very interesting is that not a lot can be found online for the development of the remake, and very specifically why they decided to remake it. I know in a lot of cases, 20th Century Fox produced both the original version and the remake. It might have been a renewing the copyright sort of situation, or there might have been some, you know, three-picture deal with John Hughes and they had to get one more movie out of him and Home Alone had done really well. 
So they figured, why not do a Christmas movie? I don't know. I couldn't really find a lot of information about it, which was interesting considering it's a more recent film. But I figured we'd talk about some interesting similarities and differences. Both movies, the premise is basically exactly the same. They're about skeptics learning to believe in something magical. Both movies are made really well and in a very competent way where you can enjoy watching both of them. And one thing I thought was also interesting, especially about the modern version, was there's not a lot of camera trickery. The 1947 one, because it was one of the first films in the 40s to shoot outside of a studio setting, it was very simple shots, grab them and move on. I would say the most trickery you see in the 94 version is John Hughes used the same technique he used in um, Home Alone, actually where they would put a light on top of the actor on screen to give them this kind of soft, angelic glow and add a very warm, lovely feel to the whole movie, which I thought was very effective because I felt quite warm and lovely throughout the entire film. Also, unfortunately, both films also have a whole long courtroom scene that, for my tastes and preferences, was just a smidge too long for this kind of film, especially like a Christmas film. I would say the biggest difference between the two versions is how much the 94 remake really leans into the Christmas element a lot. With, for example, traditional Christmas songs used in the original score and and the production design. And to mildly spoil it, the two main characters go on a date and they go to pretty much Every famous New York City landmark during Christmas Central Park ice skating rink, the Rockefeller Center tree. And of course, quote unquote, Kohl's, which is really Macy's, is featured in all of its Christmas glory. So I thought that was very interesting to see just how much they tried to lean into that element of it. And one thing this film did differently strategy wise is that it released during the holiday season, which you think would be a sensible idea, especially because it is such a Christmas-heavy film, unlike the original. But unfortunately, it was just in such a crowded market. There was the Santa Claus. There was It's a Little Bit of a Christmas Movie, but Little Women. There was the Steve Martin comedy Mixed Nuts. So it was just such an oversaturated holiday market that it got a little lost in the shuffle. So funny enough, maybe Richard D. Zanuck was onto something. That being said, from what I can tell, this movie has also achieved such a second life in VOD and pay-per-view that it's not like it's, you know, lost to the dark ages. But it is interesting how maybe being too Christmassy was the downfall of this film. My mother's Mrs. Walker. She's director of special events for Coles. Uh-huh. She runs a parade. Oh. I know how this all works. An employee of Coles. That is true. But you're a very good Santa Claus. Thank Your you. beard stuck on real tight. <laughs> Usually the store Santa Claus whispers are too loose. Right. Yours look realistic. That's because they are real. You give them a tug. Woo! <laughs> are you convinced? <laughs> good. So watching these films, it got me wondering. Why are holiday traditions such as Santa Claus so important to us? And of course, my first thought was maybe it's some sort of psychological thing. Maybe it's a development thing. And it turns out, as always, I was right. (laughs) 
I'm I'm kidding. I promise I'm kidding. But upon researching, it does turn out to be not only a psychological thing, but more of an anthropological sort of thing as well. The professor Demetrius Zigalatas, I sincerely apologize if I butchered his name, who is a professor of anthropology and psychology at the University of Connecticut, wrote an article about holiday traditions and what they mean to us as a species. When he wrote an article in 2017 for Yukon Today, he writes, From reciting blessings to raising a glass to making a toast, holiday traditions are replete with rituals. Laboratory experiments and field studies show that the structured and repetitive actions involved in such rituals can act as a buffer against anxiety by making our world a more predictable place. What's more, anthropologists have noted that among many societies, ritualized gift-giving plays a crucial role in maintaining social ties by creating networks of reciprocal relationships. Which I think is really an interesting thing to think about, not just with holidays, but with the practice, if you will, of being a film lover and watching films as well. Think of how many times you've watched your favorite film and how much it still affects you. It's almost like your brain and your body are going through the ritual of experiencing and enjoying the story or, you know, even there's the small tradition after Christmas Day, there's really not much else to do. So everyone goes to the movies or every year my family and I watch a Christmas story. There's something so ritualized about these things, and I don't think it's for nothing. I think rituals, as long as they are not destructive, <laughs> I should preface, I think rituals are really important. And I think that article is correct, that it does make the world a less scary place. But I, th I think the danger is when things become too ritualized. So I was thinking about how last year, I was trying to do a holiday episode that encompassed a couple of different holidays like Hanukkah and Ramadan, for example, and it was so hard to find a holiday movie that wasn't just about Christmas. And I think that's something that's kind of ritualized in our society is just we celebrate Christmas. It's the Christmas season. Here's a Christmas movie that I think there's a way to keep traditions alive and keep ritualized practices alive, but also elevate them. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I got into such deep thought while watching these two Christmas movies that are essentially the same movie, but I don't know. I guess that's why I love film, and I guess that's why I actually really liked this season as well, was because the ritual of storytelling is so pertinent in our society, and I think looking at ways that we experienced certain films then and certain films now it really kind of puts things into perspective about who we are and where we're going. And I'm a bit of an optimist, but I do think in some ways we're heading in the right direction. And this is what this film and also this season has taught me. I think that is a great way to end this diatribe of an episode. And thank you all so, so, so much for listening to the season, checking out each episode. I also want to thank all of the guests that have come on this season. They were really, really wonderful to have stopped by. And as usual, to get to the ritualized part of our episode ending, find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and let us know what you think. What are some of your favorite holiday movies that we haven't talked about? Did you like or dislike any of these movies or do you know some more about these movies that I don't you know we want to hear from you guys and 
hear your thoughts because we really respect and appreciate them. If you would like to have continued Girl Presses Play content until our next season, sign up to be a Patreon member just for $5 a month. You can get a new episode each month. And this month's Patreon episode will be coming out later this week. And with that, stay safe. Whatever holiday you celebrate this year, have a wonderful holiday season. And of course, keep watching movies. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for new episodes and be sure to check us out on our Patreon page where you can support the show and get some really cool exclusive stuff for doing it. Special thanks to John F., Feriolo Fencing, LLC, Mariano Dwyer, and Helen Rafferty. For news on upcoming episodes, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Girl Presses Play. The show is written, produced, and hosted by Alana Rafferty. Intro music is composed by Asha Iwanowitz, and our logo design is by Mark Sauve. Thanks again. See you next time. Girl presses play.